I'm Zach Osborne, host of the Husqvarna Shifting Gears podcast, as well as rider for Rockstar Energy Husqvarna Factory Racing. I love my race bike, but it's not the only model I love from Husqvarna Motorcycles. They offer a whole range of off-road and street motorcycles. When you don't want to have to load up just to go for a ride, a dual-sport motorcycle is the perfect way to get your fix. Explore the trail beyond with the FE250, which delivers a more intuitive riding experience. And right now, Husqvarna Motorcycles is offering as low as 0% financing on select dual sport models head to your local authorized Husqvarna motorcycles dealer and learn more a pulp mx network production the only athlete to athlete podcast in the sport questions from a different perspective the hard questions you want answered about training riding and being a professional athlete not only in motocross, but in other sports realms as well. Welcome to Shifting Gears, the Zach Osborne Podcast. Hello, folks. This is the Husqvarna USA Shifting Gears Podcast, and I'm the host, Zach Osborne. I bring you today a, hello, a humble hello, folks, because the last time I did a podcast with Phil and Alex... Um, my biggest critic of this podcast um, said that I stole his traditional yeah intro to his podcast. So today, hello folks, welcome to the Husqvarna USA Shifting Gears podcast, presented or hosted by Zach Osborne. Um, here today in my home, in my bed with my wife. Um, <laughs> this is not going to get weird uh, in Claremont, Florida. Um, this is actually the last episode of Shifting Gears for quite some time. Um, I have had an awesome opportunity with Husqvarna and Skosh and Fly Racing to um, have an awesome show all year. And I have to give a huge shout out to Steve Mathis for um, letting me use the Pulp MX network. The idea of this podcast was completely his and he um, turned me loose. So I'm, I hope you guys have enjoyed it and I have for sure um, had some amazing guests and um, just yeah learned some cool stuff about this side of the sport and this side of the job um, that I didn't really know before um, and learned some cool stuff about some people that uh, really interested me. So today um, Brittany is going to sort of interview me. Uh, a few months ago I had a listener who wrote in about 25 questions um, about my career and um, his name is Bradley Ryman. I had the chance to meet Bradley at the 2017 Motocross of Nations, and uh, he taught me how to fold an American flag in the tr- traditional triangle way, uh, which was awesome. I still remember how to do it today. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a really cool that he has kind of, like, almost recapped my entire career and also asked some pretty cool and unique questions about um, – my opinion on things so i've chosen Brittany to carry this uh questionnaire interview out and i'm looking forward to it how's it going Brittany? it's going great uh first i want to give it up to your listener fan for these questions because the depth of these questions shows that he's been following your career for a very long time um you know you and i've been in each other's lives since we were 12 years old and he's like going back to the very very beginning <laughs> so um i mean i'm i'm impressed by that uh, uh do remember this was he sent me this in the end of 
June or beginning of July. So there's some um, some that are a little bit time sensitive, but I'll still answer them. And um, he he writes them from his perspective, but uh, it's totally okay if you kind of paraphrase and and ask the main question. Okay. And so again, thank you so much, and uh, you guys bear with me, okay? <laughs> uh, so he makes mention of your very earliest years um, on a motorcycle. He mentions your dad competed in NHRA drag racing and, you know, the fact that you have racing in your genes. And um, he wanted to know more about your time with KTM as a, you know, very young amateur. Yeah. Um, So my parents owned a shop um, from the time I was, I guess, nine years old. And uh, it was a KTM shop. They also sold Husaberg, which was kind of um, a KTM affiliate at the time. And, uh, yeah, I rode KTMs from the time I was uh, eight years old until um, 17, uh, minus one year that I rode Suzuki, where uh, there was no KTM. But the whole time I was kind of developing the KTM 85 on the the side. So... um, yeah, didn't really count, but uh, I was with KTM for 11 years, the first go-around, and now um, uh, on my sixth year uh, with Husqvarna on the second go-around, if you will. So, I mean, it was just the the logical choice with them owning a shop and um, me kind of representing the shop to ride a KTM. You had a pretty good amateur career. Uh, you won one championship. Fun pack. <laughs> one at Loretta's. One championship yeah. at Loretta's, which always kind of blows people's which minds. Which I will get revenge on someday. <laughs> uh, but you came up short in the Super Mini class the same year uh, with 191 finishes. Uh, the following year, you went straight to 125s, and you came away with two seconds that year. Without running any kind of A or B class in amateurs, you went all in and made your pro Supercross debut at Daytona just a few months later, and you were on a 125. Um, How was the transition to four strokes for you, especially on a bike that was arguably not on par with the Japanese bikes at the time? So, first off, those two seconds at Loretta's were horrendous seconds. Um, Probably two of the hardest seconds that I... Well, not probably definitely two of the hardest losses i ever suffered as an amateur um one one was to dunge and one was to stroop um but i i really kind of had the ball in in my hands uh going into both last motos and and blew it um that's why i say i'll get revenge on loretta someday mm-hmm. um he begs me all the time to please let him <laughs> race um like well me phil and alex we discussed it on the last podcast that we're you know we're going back there's going to be like a Reunion there, so just oh, yeah, he's trying ready. to groom our eighteen-month-old, um, but I, I know that it's secretly for him. Um, so yeah, back to the question. Uh, the transition was very rough. Um, I did okay at Daytona in '06. That was my first pro race. Um, I got really, really lucky and got in from the heat race. I got, I think, I got ninth, maybe eighth. But I remember Brandon Jessman was like pressuring me big style um, for the last transfer spot. Uh, to get into the main and then uh, in the main I sent it over the berm in the first turn almost killed a photographer and uh, um, I think I got 14th so it was it was tough I was on a factory bike basically and um, I had all, all, all the stuff but I was very young and um, 
not in the best shape and very naive and just a lot to learn. Fly Racing believes that our highest obligation is to provide the best products to riders worldwide. With the Formula Helmet, Fly Racing set out with one simple goal. Deliver the most technologically advanced, highest performing motocross and off-road helmet the world has ever seen. Five years of development later, that dream has been realized. Check out formula.flyracing.com to learn more. So, you got hurt at Daytona, right? No, I was I was fine. I... Um, hmm. I didn't do any more Supercross, and then I raced Hangtown. Um, I got sixth in the first moto, which was my first ever outdoor moto. And then the second moto, I fell down and broke my clutch off, so I, I DNF'd, I think. And um, that was pretty much the highlight of 06, and really the highlight of my whole time in America before I left the Europe. Right, so the rest of that year was just pretty shot. A write-off. You got Epstein-Barr that year. Um, You know, was it just the pressure or, you know, you you made mention of the fitness and just the general, you know, being naive. Um, You know, I know he, he mentions here, you know, I'm a big fan of never wanting a do-over because we learn so much from every experience. But where do you think things took a turn? Was it the big jump from two strokes to four strokes? Was it um, training, uh, a lack of guidance from the people around you? What What do you think was the biggest uh, setback in that transition period? Um, precisely every one of those things. <laughs> uh, it was just a tough time. I was uh, young and... Um, I wasn't I wasn't ready for the jump. Um, I don't really know in the end why I did it, but that's just what happened. Um, but as far as a do-over, um, I definitely wouldn't take a do-over. I, I'm so content and so honestly glad the way that it went the, that it went the way that it did because I've developed so many amazing relationships when I lived in Europe and just you know if. I knew the if I knew that someday I would get to where I am today, I would, you know, take that suffering every time. But um, it's just, yeah, it's it's a it's a lesson learned and um, something that actually motivates me to help young kids in the future avoid. You know, I know that it's a very crucial time and um, something that I feel in our sport uh, is kind of lacking where the transition in other sports sticking ball sports and um just all other sport in general i feel like there's a much more uh set program for how you become a professional and i think that that that's something that i can really um kind of change the the face of in the future yeah um so after all that how did you find yourself on yamaha troy you know which was at that point in time one of the biggest teams in the paddock with uh very rich history um what was that deal like especially you know a year later the team was on the brink so how, how did you find yourself in that situation um well at the end of 07 which was my my year on ktm i didn't really have an offer to extend they were going to farm out their team to um, MDK, I believe, and uh, the, the Yamaha Troy offer was the only thing that I had. Um, the ride was for no money, no salary, and 
the team was kind of already on the brink when I joined. Um, they had good stuff and and good people. Just the funding was funny and uh, just a lot of weird little stuff. So it yeah, it just went awry. I crashed at the first round at Anaheim. I was actually really really prepared and really good shape, and the bike was good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I crashed at the first round at, at Anaheim and broke my scapula um, clean through in the in the thickest part, and that was like. 10 weeks so i missed more or less all the supercross and then uh first outdoor race broke my wrist and missed yeah didn't didn't race another outdoor for yeah i never rode the yamaha troy bike again right uh later that summer you raced southwick on a 450 southwick on a 450 but that was um steve dixon brought me kind of uh with some suspension and and yeah nothing else my dad bought me a bike and um we went there and raced and uh the first moto i I ran out of gas (laughs) um because we didn't have a big tank and then the second moto i think jgr loaned us a tank so i I finished but i went down in the first turn with shorty and i think i want to say i got back to ninth or something but that seems a little bit too good so i don't i don't really remember that that much about the race um so you made mention of Steve Dixon by this point, you know, by the time you had broken your wrist at Glen Helen, obviously had some downtime while you were healing from that. Um, you fell into some luck. Um, Steve Dixon, well, actually Ash Kane, uh, finds you in a diner in California and sort of presents an opportunity to you to get to Europe. Um, talk a little bit about that and um, the factors in that decision and, you know, how you got there. There weren't really many factors in the decision. The decision, I mean, the factors were that it was an opportunity and that was the only opportunity that I, that I had. Um, when I went there, I was on a two-race deal. So I had kind of two weeks to train. I was going to do a British Championship, was at, which was at Fox Hills. And then uh, the first GP I was going to do was Lommel. So, you know, right in the deep end. Um, but that was my two races. Like, that was my tryout. They had expected their, their guy that they were missing. It was a fill-in ride, basically. And um, they were expecting the guy that they were missing back after that. And and then uh, the first race I did was Fox Hills, and I went 3-3 behind um uh, Sean Simpson and Stephen Sword, who were at the time the the two guys to beat in the British Championship, and um, I got beat pretty handedly, I believe, I, I, if I remember correctly. Um, but it was a you know a decent showing to start with. So um, then the next weekend in Lommel, um first moto my bike broke. I don't remember what happened, and second moto I got an eighth, which was sensational. That was my best sand ride until the last sand race I did um, in 2012. So um, pretty good two-race stretch. And then, uh, yeah, I ended up staying on Steve's team for, for the following four years. But back to Ash. Uh, I met Ash at a diner in, um, uh, is it Cocos? Corona? Wasn't it Corona? Yeah, in Corona, but I think it's uh, called Mimi's, Mimi's yeah, Cafe. Mimi's. <laughs> um, I was thinking it was Coco's, but yeah, Mimi's Cafe in Corona. I happened to be sitting by myself one day. Him and uh, Rob Walters um, walked in, and they were with a buddy, and they had one seat open, and and uh, Wobs asked me to come over and sit with them, and um, we kind of kicked the, kicked the idea around. At that time, I was trying to heal my shoulder blade and um, just kind of get 
get back on my feet and get riding again and he was like yeah you know we'll have something blah 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 well lo and behold like four months later the phone rings and it's him and it just yeah it's kind of miraculous how it all worked out but it did right so he mentions here your segment in the Moto 4 movie um, how you know people in America had kind of forgotten you 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 disappeared to Europe and no one knew what you were doing but that segment in that movie gave you a platform to show people what you were up to and uh, you mentioned your sights being set on eventually finding your way back to America um he talks about the challenges of being the only American, being away from your family, your girlfriend, me, yeah. <laughs> practicing and racing on completely foreign tracks. Was there a time you had a talk with yourself and really how did you find out who you were? I. That's a good question because I don't really know um, – what it was uh if i had to attribute it to one thing it was that the guys that i was around at the time um on the team were so passionate about racing and it was kind of like an experience that i'd never had before because i was uh, a factory kid from when i was 10 years old or whatever and um when i went there it was just a new lease lease on racing because i had never experienced it as just such a fun thing like these these guys went to the shop every day and had a blast and like i just became part of the team quickly and um you know slept in the truck with them on the weekends and like we did it for for fun like we were having a, a good time and i think that once i decided that like it could be fun and i could actually really do it um it was a completely different deal for me I, I kind of rediscovered um why i started racing and where i came from and and so many things came to realization be, just because i found fun in riding again it, it just brought a new passion back to me and um probably something that i had never really experienced about racing until i got there and got on the team um i had a mechanic mikey um the other mechanic ben my teammate mel um we had some super fun just dudes that hung out Derek, he was our you know wheel cart guy like we just had such a good group of, of people that um it was just so fun to go racing and i think that that kind of sparked me you know that confidence that i found in that poured over into my racing and my riding and then um that poured over into my life and then yeah here we are i mean that was 2008 so 11 years later and i'm still kind of riding that wave i guess you could say right so since your time in europe where you did reinvent yourself or find yourself however you want to say it (laughs) you've developed this brawler riding style you know you're a fighter and uh he mentions that you know no one's sort of ridden with that attitude for many years and he even compares you to hannah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you also have a softer sensitive side and kenneth in the same moto four segment sort of made mention of that how 
you were kind and polite and you helped out with riding schools and you were just a great role model to the kids that you were interacting with with him he says i'm sure it was great to be able to break rank almost shed that tough guy attitude you need to keep your edge and have a little bit of fun with the kids yeah i don't i don't ever feel like um i need that to pour over into uh my my personal life i feel like i yeah really just can separate the two you know when i put my goggles on I'm probably a little bit of a different person. <laughs> um, I switch off a little bit, and there's not a lot of thought going on, you know. But um, I try, you know, to just be who I am, and I r- really enjoy helping people, and and just um, I try to be a good person in general. Right. So we. You briefly mentioned a lot of the people on the team with you at Steve's. Um, we also made mention of Kenneth Gunderson, which was your mentor and your trainer. For three of the years, I was there. For three of the five years. And uh, one one family that we haven't talked about yet were the Pococks, Mel and Pip and the brothers. Yes. So... Talk talk about your relationship with them and what role they played in your assimilation to the European lifestyle and how how they helped you in this time. Um, their role would be my family, basically. I mean, um, they took me in. They had uh, four boys of their own, um, Mel, Bradley, Brett, and, and Matthew, and... Um, I was the fifth son, uh, the oldest of, of five. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, seriously, like, uh, they, they treated me as if I was their own. Um, I'm still, you know, eight, eight years later, um, since I left there or s- seven years later since I left there, um, in constant contact with Mel. And, um, I look back on that time and it was some of the funnest times I've ever had in my life, just riding mini bikes or, mud bogging or just whatever we wanted to do really you know it was a time that I really cherish and and I enjoyed and we had so many good adventures together Mel and I and in in my little motorhome and in his motorhome and just I mean the whole thing it couldn't have worked out more perfectly and I couldn't have really fit into even you know like my own family any better you know it, it was just seamless it seemed um it's the whole thing, uh, the whole European adventure of my life, five years, is just like fate had me by the by the hands, and we were you know cruising through it. It's it's pretty insane to look back, and you know in the moment it didn't seem that strange or that off the wall, but now like uh, of all the places I could have ended up, of all the teams I could have been on, of all the people I could have met, like. I met all the best people in all mm-hmm. the right places at all the right times. It's it's really just pretty crazy. Yeah, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, you know, because we have two small kids, a five-year-old and an 18-month-old, and we feel so busy, you know. We don't, we don't have time for yeah. much else, you know, and I think of that family and them having four boys all of them raised yeah raised and rode and you know 
poor Pip and <laughs> Big Mel. Like the last thing that they needed was another son to take on one more uh, person in their home, or you know, one more you know person to worry about on a bike or whatever. But they did it so um, mercifully, and just we we love them so much and. You know, we say it every time that we're lucky enough to go visit them that whenever we open the front door, it just it still feels like home, you know, eight years later. So. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like when we went there um, in 17 for the Nations, I, I was able to like basically drive to their house with no GPS from, yeah. from the airport, which was insane. But one of Big Mel's favorite stories is um, I celebrated my... 18th. 18th birthday mm-hmm. or 19th birthday? 18th. 18th birthday at their house and... Um, his wife was obviously washing all my clothes and stuff and um they were like what you know what what should we get him for his birthday and he was like you gotta get him some pants he he's wearing the same pants over and over yeah you only had a couple pairs of pants left to your name and pairs of underwear so (laughs) they bought me some underwear for your 18th birthday yeah yeah but i needed it (laughs) yeah bless them so we talk about this all the time and he mentions it here too that you know you came from a very small town in western western virginia, virginia not which west is, virginia yeah different from west virginia the it's southwestern the corner part of, of the state of virginia <laughs> but through your experiences you have a wider worldview i guess you could say that can't be taught you know it just has to be learned from experience what do you enjoy most about traveling and living abroad I love seeing new things. Um, the earth is an incredible place and there's just so many experiences out there. I, you know, just like traveling with our children, I, I think that um, traveling makes you adaptable. It makes you uh, well-rounded. There's there's so many benefits to traveling and I love that. I was taught um, at a very young age. My dad raced drag cars professionally, so, you know, planes you know i never really saw the world as a out of reach like i knew about planes and going places when i was as as, you know as early as i can remember so for me um all i've ever known is traveling and uh actually not traveling the thought of not traveling scares me a little bit so Mm -hmm. uh i just love to go and i love the adventure and um the the things that you don't plan or can't plan are you know, the ones where you grow or remember the most, I think. Right. Yeah, you're a lot better at that than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the paddock right now, pick one person to head to Europe. Who would you take, given their personality, flexibility, riding style? Who would embrace the experience and really thrive when thrown into a situation like that? Um, to me, there's two ways you can approach that. Um, there's the free and easy, don't care, I'm just here to ride my dirt bike and have fun approach. Or there's the, I'm going to go there, I'm going to win a world championship, and I'm going to, you know, do this thing properly. Um, on the free and easy side, and probably still win races, I would probably say Jason could do it. Um, he seemed to really enjoy our trip to Assen, and and I think he's he's pretty open-minded, so... I think he could do it. Um, obviously, Eli's incredible outdoors, so I think if, if anyone could win a world championship, it would be Eli. Um, but the lifestyle change is massive, so there's some hurdles there. Uh, 
it's just hard to say anyone who can go there feel at home feel comfortable in their surroundings and kind of get going right away i think that 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 really anyone can do it but you have to be able to embrace it you have to want to be there Mm -hmm. you have to um you know you can't be like well in america or i'm an american or you know all the time you can't use that as a, a crutch you know you have to go there embed yourself and get started right so you have four successful seasons in Europe, and then semi. Yeah, these are his words, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> uh, you end up on the West Coast in the Supercross series on a two fifty. Uh, talk about how did you, how did that opportunity present itself, and talk a little bit about those couple of races that you did. Um, so at the end of 2011, I had a small injury, uh, missed the last few races of the season. Um, but in the meantime, uh, while the injury was getting better, I had an offer from Rockstar Suzuki, which is basically the same team that I'm on now, um, to race Supercross and outdoors for two years. Um, I had one year left in the MX2 because that was the first year that they were going to implement the under 23 rule um and i uh, let me think i i had one i had another year on my contract with steve but i brought in the offer and i was like hey look i you know this is an opportunity to go home i'm tired i you know i might want to go home and and pursue this and he was like kind of understanding but he really wanted me to stay because we had some really good things in the works for the next year and um it was going to be a big bummer for the team if i left but uh so i talked him into if i could if i would stay um we would do for the first four rounds of supercross i would do all my training in america and um we would you know go in my van and race supercross and um it was something that he kind of had always wanted to do so we put together a bike and just went racing honestly out of the back of my van and yeah um you know the story yeah uh it's pretty crazy that we were as successful as we were out of the the back of a van and you know we had some support from rock river but it was mostly um just done in in the house garage that we were running during the week and Mm -hmm. that was that was that and you got two podiums two podiums uh i got ninth at anaheim one uh, six that Phoenix really should have gotten on the podium in Phoenix, but I kind of choked a little bit, and then LA third and Oakland third. And then you guys already had an arrangement that you would do those four races, go back to Europe, which was really hard for you, I know, because you were really excited, and the Wacko Zacco train was leaving the station. Leaving the well, station. I think when I left, I was like. Uh, I want to say like 15 points out of the, out of the lead after mm-hmm. four rounds, which was considerable. But then some stuff happened the next couple of weeks, and um, you know, if it's and, ifs and buts were candy and nuts, but you know, <laughs> I felt like I should have stayed. But uh, went back to Europe, and um, we had a bike malfunction on a jump that uh, injured me and basically cost us the season. I came back for the last five GPS, and uh, I got a couple of podiums here and there um but it was basically just for fun and and farewell to the boys right then you came home from there 
Got married. Yep, got married. I, I would say that um, had the age rule not been in place, there was a time where we both had talked about you know just staying in Europe or even taking an MX1 ride or there was some time there where we thought about not coming home really yeah well I did I mean I'm, I was up for anything the first the first year of my travels in Europe with you were definitely the hardest because you know you have to swallow your pride a little bit and like you mentioned embrace where you are and just dig in you know just dig in and go for it and I I really struggled to do that at first and you know I was in nursing school at that time so I was only there such a short you know in short bouts off and on through the year but I did get my bearings and now I can honestly say I really enjoy Europe and I actually feel like it has shaped us you know, in the yeah. long term, as far as our lifestyle and some of the choices that we make, but um, you know, at that point, it, the sky was the limit. We could have done anything, but the age roll is ultimately what pushed us home. Pushed us home, and in the wedding, it was important for you to, you know, you you weren't quite ready to dismiss things on this side, right? Yeah. To you know, you you had uh, goals and dreams that you wanted to fulfill and we the one thing that we did say was that we wouldn't get married until we could spend yeah tw- the time together yeah. you know we didn't want to be living on Across separate continents <laughs> so yeah. uh once we got married you raced for geico honda yeah. then you found yourself on the team you're on now rockstar husqvarna uh, beginning in 2015 yeah. with bobby hewitt did you have other options at that time? Um, because he makes mention of some doubters that, you know, you you were semi-successful in Geico, just struggled to find your niche, I yeah. guess. Both of us kind of stuck out like sore thumbs there. But, um, you know, how did you land on the Rockstar Husqvarna? So back to um, 2012, I had the opportunity to go to basically any team I wanted to in 250 class um, and uh, ended up choosing the Geico Honda deal. It was a really good deal for two years, um, good money, kind of everything that I was looking for in a deal to to come home on. And um, it just didn't go that well. It was just not that awesome. And um, at the end of, well, actually in the beginning, middle of 2014, um, Bobby had hit me up about... Uh, them doing a team with Husqvarna Mm -hmm. and that seemed a bit you know shaky because I wasn't totally aware of all the details Mm -hmm. and um, Bobby had made me an offer at the end of 2012 and then also at the end of 2011 so I felt like you know he was knocking and um, I didn't have another offer at the time Um, Bobby was my only offer I could have stayed at Geico um, but it just like you said it wasn't it wasn't that we weren't meshing that well so i ended up taking the deal with bobby and and i did it a little bit motivated by um the off-road side of husqvarna and ktm Mm -hmm. and uh because i was almost leaning that way at that point like that i needed to do something else because the motocross thing was just really tough for me and uh 
wasn't as successful as what I felt I should be. And there were just some factors where I felt like that was kind of the path that I was going. You know, I could do two or three more years in the motocross stuff and then quickly and easily transition into off-road with Husqvarna and everything would be good. So that was almost why, you know, we ended up choosing that. Um, But, yeah, back to Bobby, he, he was... You know he's been on, he had been on to me for three or four years, so I felt like it was time to take him up on it. Right, and he actually asked about Bobby specifically, and you know his knack for finding guys and giving being patient with them and allowing them time to develop in order to get the most out of them. How much of that do you think is the team? You know the the support that he has from the team, or um, how much of that is due to Alden? Um, I would say a lot of that is, I mean, mostly Bobby because Bobby, at the end of the day, chooses the riders. But Bobby's biggest thing is he allows us to be who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said it tons of times that he, you know, he doesn't mind. He doesn't try to change us into the the right person for the job. He tries to kind of bring the job to us. And I think that that's the biggest part of his his success is in, in finding riders is that he doesn't try to tra- change the rider. He tries to kind of make everything work around the rider, you know. And I think he's extremely good at that, and that's one of his biggest um, character assets to the team. I mean, it probably is his biggest character asset, and I think he's good on the business side, and that's why he's been successful in, in Supercross. So jumping ahead to Bud's Creek 2016, you go 4-1 for the win, your very first outdoor win. And then six months later, you win your first Supercross in Atlanta in 2017. Which win meant more after a couple of so-so years back in the States? Um, For sure, Bud's Creek, because it was like, you know, I had strived so hard and I hadn't really won anything of significance since my GP... Well, I won the British Championship in 2010, but um, more significant than that was my British Championship win, or uh, my GP win in in Turkey in 2009. So it had been a long time, and, um, you know, as much as I did win in British Championship and um, just kind of ran towards the front in Europe, I kind of lost sight of that, and wondered if I still could win. I had won a moto uh, earlier in the year at High Point, and that was a huge stepping stone, but I went 1-4, and I got beat with a 4-1, so that was a bummer. And then to win with a 4-1 at Bud's Creek, um, the place where kind of my downward spiral all started was pretty pretty incredible um it was also a tough day though day though because i was working with a trainer ryan rowell um who had quickly become one of my best friends and still is today um and you know i knew we both knew that i was gonna go come here to florida and work with alden the next year so it was kind of a bittersweet day you know where we both got to um, relish the victory, but at the same time, we both kind of knew the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to continue. So it was it was a tough thing. Like you know, it, it almost made me wonder if I was doing the right thing at the time. Right. Um, obviously, now things have worked out for both of us, but it was definitely back to the question. Definitely, the the win at Bud's Creek was was and still is one of the 
best you know most special wins that i've ever had um it's hard to top the first time mm-hmm. um so you won this your very first supercross in atlanta in 2017 and then you went on to win three more supercross races that year you come into vegas after a big win in um it was in New Jersey. New Jersey, sorry. You're tied with Joey in the points, and you were one point off of Jordan Smith. Was yeah. that right? Yeah, he was leading. Um, off the gate, you're in a great position. Joey gets the whole shot, and what happened after that? <laughs> um, I mean, I was down in the first turn for an eternity, and um, basically rode the race of my life to to come back to life and um and win the title with two turns to go um there's it's one of those times in my life where i don't really remember uh that much because i was that in the zone and that focused on what was going on um i I don't really think that i got up in the first turn and and took off thinking that i had any chance at winning because you know not only at that time, not only did I have to catch one person, but I had to catch two people. And also there was an outside chance that the guy who was leading could win, you know. So it was just not even in my mind. And then um, as the race went on and on, it just came closer and closer. And I was well aware of where everyone on the, was on the track. And, um, it, yeah, it's just, I mean, I've watched the race probably thousand times at this point and it still never seems like it's going to happen until right at the end right so basically you channeled every lesson you've learned over you know at that time the last 10 years of your life and every experience and failure and success and mustered up the courage and heart to make it happen and win that championship on a night where it looked like no one wanted to win uh, he calls it one of the greatest races ever. I've heard a lot, you know, I've heard numerous people say that it's one of the greatest races ever, which is insane because I did only get seventh in the end. But mm-hmm. um, it's pretty incredible to be um, even talked about in one of the most incredible races ever. Uh, it's it's still pretty surreal, honestly. Like. You know, the other two championships that I've won, uh, the championship in 18 and then the championship outdoors were both very, um, let's say, anticlimactic almost to compare to that one because that was just, I don't know how it can be any more dramatic or um, <laughs> explosive, I guess. It's just an insane memory at this point. Right. So you go on that year to win an outdoor title as well. Along the way, you're selected to represent the Motocross of Nations team, which was back at sort of your home track, I guess you could say, in Matterley Basin, which was in England, um, where you spent a lot of time. And the promoter of the event was Steve Steve Dixon, Dixon, who was, you know, your former boss. So how, how was that for you? You know, what made it so special? First of all, to be chosen 
obviously you had represented Puerto Rico before, but this was your first time ever representing your home country. And to go back to England, to Matterly Basin, and you were also chosen the captain as well on the 250 bike. It was an unreal feeling. I mean, Matterly, in my opinion, is the best track on planet Earth. Um, I don't don't think that there's any track that even is you know questionably better than Madeley um so to be chosen um to go back to England uh to have the support of the British fans there like it was it was so so cool and so awesome because Steve had a great event and I mean it's just it was one of those things that kind of kind of put it all into perspective how far I had come um from the time that I I arrived there till yeah, the the end of 2017 was just an incredible kind of story, and um, I, I had a blast at the event. I rode great on Saturday, probably uh, one of the top five best days I've ever had on the bike. Like the the bike was unreal, the grip was unreal, the crowd was sick. Like it was just still is one of my favorite racing memories uh, ever, and one that that as a member of team USA, like that was one of my biggest goals as a racer ever, especially the whole time I was in Europe. Like I always wanted to be picked for the team because I felt like I was there and I was racing those guys every weekend and I deserved to be picked, but, um, was always kind of picked over. So to be there and, and just representing my country was, uh, was an unreal feeling. Okay. So from here, the fan mentions the aspirations for the 2019 Motocross of Nations because, as you mentioned, he wrote these questions earlier back. in the summer right. prior to. Um, but I'm not quite ready to to go down that road yet. You know, in 2017, you won the Supercross Lights title and the Outdoor title as well what led to your decision to stay on a 250 for the following year in 2018 um basically that was kind of husqvarna's plan um to run the number one plate uh both supercross and outdoors uh obviously i defended the title and in supercross and then in uh outdoors i was leading leading the championship and uh got injured uh third round so that was kind of that done um and then you know obviously 2019 was my first year in the 450 class uh, i crashed two weeks before anaheim won and uh, broke my collarbone really bad and just kind of generally banged myself up really bad and uh that cost me kind of half of supercross and then came back at the end of supercross and it was it was relatively good um i felt like i did a pretty good job as a rookie and missing a lot of races which is a lot of race craft and just kind of trying to find my feet in the 450 class um got one podium and and yeah it was it was decent um and then outdoors i was able to really find my feet um and be in the top five a lot uh just on the podium six times i won a moto and uh, was able to get picked for the motocross the nations team again in Assen and uh, it you know it went okay uh, I think we we put in a lot of effort into it and we all really really wanted it to go better than what it did and 
mainly just the end result because we were all kind of we put in everything that we could and we gave yeah our our very best effort to the preparations and to the bikes and just everything and um so so badly we wanted to kind of prove people wrong uh and i think that in, in a sense they they won but um we'll be back for more right so to wrap up his questions you're a champion in 250 supercross yeah. 250 outdoors you've won one 450 motocross race and he says eventually you'll be a 450 <laughs> champion uh he said while doing research he came across an interview where you said you would love to have a world championship one day does this still hold true and would you go back to europe in search of that championship um uh yeah some days it holds true uh (laughs) some days i would love to go back to europe and race one or two more years um i think it would be cool i think it would be a cool experience for my family i think that it would just be fun to go back and race for a couple years i mean but at the same time i don't want to do it at at a not competitive level you know i want to go there and and race for wins too so it's a huge commitment and and something that i've definitely kicked around that we've definitely talked about Mm -hmm. um if the opportunity came came along but at the same time um there's more pieces to the puzzle now than just me or me and you sending it around Europe in a small motorhome. So I think that, um, if that bridge ever comes, we'll, we'll cross it when we get there, but it would definitely not be out of the question. I mean, for me anyways. Right. No, I'm up for about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time. He says, this one's just for fun. Pick a teammate from the U.S. You both have been offered a ride on any factory team there. You both take your families along, but Belgium and Holland are both full. (laughs) Where do you go to settle in, train, and base yourself? Well, honestly, (laughs) yeah, Belgium and Holland would be probably my last choice um, as far as where I would live. Um, Just because I think it's a little bit like California now where... Um, it's just kind of the hotbed and everyone's there. So um, I'm not that guy. Uh, it would either be England, Norway, or maybe Italy. I mean, Italy is pretty cool. It's a cool cool place. And um, just to kind of be embedded in Italian lifestyle for a couple of years would be cool, I think. Um, to learn the language pretty easy. Um, I love England, obviously. Mm-hmm. I was there for five years and enjoyed it. And Norway is one of the most amazing places I've ever been to. So, um, three solid options. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would depend on, uh, the team situation and, um, what they thought, uh, as far as a teammate, mm, um, probably my current training partner, Cooper Webb, because we get along good and, um, we kind of have, uh, the same sense of fun and, and also the same, um, tolerance or threshold thirst for mm-hmm. suffering so mm-hmm. i think that that'd be that'd be a fun combo and we could uh really go there and, and do it right and do it properly so i think that'd be super fun skosh accessories for life listen guys their slogan sums it up they are accessories for your life 
I use the Magic Mount vent clip every day, boom bottle all the time, go bat when we're traveling, whatever it may be, the functionality and durability of these products is second to none. That's why myself and Rockstar and J Husqvarna Factory Racing choose Skosh. Accessories for life. Check them out at Skosh, S-C-O-S-C-H-E dot com. And finally, where do you see yourself after your Supercross and Motocross career? He says he sees you following a path like Andrew Shore and dabbling in many different off-road disciplines. Uh, definitely crossed my mind. Crosses <laughs> my mind. Uh, I love I love rally. I think rally is one of the coolest uh, disciplines of motor- motorcycle racing there is. Uh, and I would love the opportunity to try my hand at learning rally. I think that there's there's an element of rally that you may not be able to do unless you're um let's say especially born for rally you know it's just like supercross not everyone can ride supercross not everyone can do rally and um, race at 100 miles an hour down a dirt path and look at a map and scroll that map and do all those things at the same time so that interests me a little bit um gncc interests me a lot um enduro like american enduro does not interest me in the slightest um mm, I love training and um, helping people. Um, I, I really don't know. There's a there's a, a, a laundry list of things that I could possibly do or could possibly see myself doing. Uh, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're I. He's not kidding about the laundry list. He actually has a list on his phone of the hobbies and things that he wants to pursue wow. whenever he has the time and i actually applaud that you know I, I can appreciate that and respect that but i have no idea where you'll be but you're definitely going to need to stay busy <laughs> um all right well i did have originally this was supposed to be um britney's podcast but she wanted to change the the uh token and um do these listener questions because they were really good and um obviously brad they spent a lot of time uh to get them over to me um i did have one question for you Brittany, from a listener um who we know well randy morton Mm -hmm. good dude he hooks us up with uh ice cream cards all the time Mm -hmm. me and my girl love and emory and Brittany love him Mm -hmm. um so the question is for Brittany: Is Zach always polite and courteous to everyone, as he is with his fans, or is it just part of the job? No, in general, he is very kind, and I don't know. You're like a teddy bear. It always kind of trips me up when people compare you to a bulldog because that's not really the Zach I know. I mean, that's the Zach on the bike, but in our everyday life you're the approachable uh more calm of the two of us definitely more level more level-headed longer fuse you're you're the better half of us i don't know about that um all right i want to do the 10 questions with you and then you can do them with me and then this will be the um finale the finale of shifting gears for the time being i'm not i'm not hanging up the boots for per se per se ever okay like i'm not saying that i'll never do a podcast again if steve gives me the opportunity again then maybe i'll take it back up but this is um see you later or goodbye for now but not goodbye forever okay um all right um most important thing that you own uh that you purchased 
which I, let me precursor this question to the listeners because you are an ultra minimal minimalist. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't really have many ties to worldly items, but I mean, this is the person who wanted a compost bin for Christmas. <laughs> so <laughs> just Sue let me, me uh, warn you. Uh, my most prized possession, basically, basically my Thermomix. <laughs> okay. Thermomix is a cooking device. <laughs> Uh, guilty pleasure food. Uh, chocolate chip cookies. Okay. Uh, morning person or night? Morning. Biggest pet peeve. <laughs> You're going to need to brace yourself. But here's her laundry list. <laughs> chew, people that chew their food loudly. So like chewing gum on a podcast would bother you. <laughs> guilty. I, I have to leave the room whenever my kids are eating. Uh, weirdest quirk? Mm, I'm a recluse. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> any other... Uh, that's kind of a racer question, but any job or talent you would want or you could have, what would it be? X-ray vision. <laughs> I would go for invisibility. You'd have to you'd be invisible. <laughs> um, travel back in time to any event. Jesus's life. Okay, that's a good one. Um, thing you're the worst at. Mm, winging it. Winging it. Mm-hmm. You're a planner. Mm-hmm. Thing you're the best at. Other than your job, this is a a questionnaire for the people who have been on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thing you're the best at, other than your job. So your job would be mom, nurse, wife, cook, cleaner, accountant. So all those. So take all those off the table. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. Well, I can't even say teacher. Mm, Sure. I'm a homes. I homeschool our daughter, but so I would like to say I'm a good teacher, but it's not technically. I'm not educated to do it. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, favorite music. Oh gosh, I actually love oldies. Yep. Um, and normally at this point, I would tell the person that they're going home with a Skosh gift bag, but you live with the Skosh gift bag, so it's okay. Thank you, Skosh. Um, quote, quote to live by. Do whatever. Pursue relentlessly that which sets your soul on fire. Wow. <laughs> Kablammy. <laughs> um, all right. All right. Zach O. Most important object you own that you've purchased? Mm, um, probably, uh, well, maybe it could be something... I've gotten. Yeah. Like my watch. I love my watch that you bought me. Okay. Guilty pleasure food. Cupcakes. I love cupcakes with a one-to-one cake and icing ratio, preferably um, cream cheese icing, um, white cake. Bingo. Not not that picky. <laughs> Morning person or night? Um, neither. Like <laughs> I'm like an 8 a.m., 9 p.m. kind of guy. <laughs> Lame. Uh, biggest pet peeve. Uh, 
<laughs> this could get long. Um, I hate tags. I literally hate tags in shirts. Um, that's recently my biggest one. Um, what's some of my other ones? Mm. Um, I hate bag tags. Like when we get to the airport, the bag um, tags have to true. come off You're at kind of the weird freaking this. bag thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Any other job or talent? Uh, I would love to be able to ski competitively and shoot competitively at biathlon at a, at a world-class level. That is the ultimate sport other than dirt bike racing. Dream big. If you could travel back in time to any event. Um, Jesus's resurrection or um, Woodstock. I know that's total oxymoron, mm-hmm, yeah. but uh, yeah, either of those would be game changers. Thing you're the worst at. Uh, it used to be being on time, but now I feel like I'm really on time. Uh, thing I'm the worst at. So I have this locker at Alden's. Um, that thing. I'm a super organized, uh, super concise person, but that thing is a disaster. Mm-hmm. I always know whenever he invites me to the track that he needs me to clean his locker. It happens. Thanks for that. Your favorite music? Um, it goes in, in waves. It's like day by day, the mood I wake up in, what music I'm going to listen to. But typically it would be like 90s alternative or um, classic rock, Skinnered, that kind of stuff. Thing you're the best at other than your job? Mm, I'm a good mechanic. Like I feel good about my mechanical skills, so that would probably be uh, the top of my list. Um, I don't know what thing I'm best at. You're good at operating heavy equipment? Oh yeah, I like to operate uh, tractors and dozers and skidsters, that kind of stuff. Um, I got a couple talents. I was gonna say it's kind of annoying how easily things come to you. Uh, quote to live by. Wait, you didn't ask me the worst thing you're the worst at. Oh, sorry. Because that's definitely woodworking. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> skip that one. Sorry. Uh, woodworking is not your forte. No, it's absolutely not my forte. I, I was actually talking to someone. Uh, today about that and they said that it takes time to develop that skill so maybe I need to add that to the list Mm. of things to um, pursue when I'm done racing woodworking okay you can build me a chicken coop yeah quote to live by if a job's worth doing it's worth doing right bingo alright guys thank you so much for listening to this uh, Husqvarna USA Shifting Gears podcast Um, this one was actually kind of hosted by Brittany Osborne I'm Zach Osborne thank you for listening to all of the shows this year and um, yeah uh, I hope to uh, maybe co-host on some other stuff for Steve or um, yeah whatever comes about but uh, this is it for now and uh, hopefully someday in the future uh, it'll come back We'll see you at the races. Thanks.